Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. The justices will head back into the courtroom for one last week of arguments in 2021. After last week's contentious abortion arguments, the justices are hearing some lower profile cases this week, though still pretty consequential, including one on state funding for religious schools. But before we get to that, let's quickly recap Mississippi abortion case. That's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. That argument took place on Wednesday. Jordan, what do you think? Any um, any surprises from the argument? No surprises for me. I think that we can be sure that the Mississippi law is going to be upheld. What exactly the court's opinion says beyond that, I don't know exactly. I don't think it would be shocking if the court formally overrules Roe and Casey. I don't think it would be shocking if they didn't. But the point, I think, is that even just upholding the Mississippi law would be effectively further eroding those two precedents. And we'll just have to see exactly what the words are when the opinions come out. What do you think? Yeah, one interesting thing um, for me was the chief justice really seemed like he was trying to find a middle ground, um, some way to uphold the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban, but not formally overrule Roe versus Wade. But it sort of seemed like even the advocates uh, weren't giving uh, the chief justice that middle ground. There was a lot of discussion about how something like that just wouldn't be workable uh, without that kind of current line of viability. And of course, they don't agree on the outcome, what that means. Um, The abortion advocates say that you should just leave the current situation in place. And the Mississippi Solicitor General said, well, you should scrap all of Roe and Casey. Um, Seemed like that last option was getting a little more, uh, a little more purchase. Yeah, because I mean, even taking away viability, I guess Roberts, if he wanted to do that, could say that that's not overruling Roe and Casey, but those are really the core of those decisions. So I don't really know exactly what would be left aside from saying there is some abortion right that's before 15 weeks. Yeah, I thought, you know, I was watching really closely Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, because I think they're kind of the the two you need to get to five. Um, And both of them made comments that I thought really showed that they were, they were ready to overturn Roe. I think with Kavanaugh, it was this discussion about, you know, um, the Constitution being silent, and shouldn't we then just return the issue to the states? As I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution's silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that accurate? Right. We're saying it's left to the people, Your Honor. And then Barrett made this comment um, that has gotten a lot of attention. Um, She was talking about the burdens uh, that the state places on a woman if she's not able to get an abortion. And she said, we really shouldn't be considering, you know, the kind of after birth effects, because after all, uh, women can always just give the child up for adoption. Actually, as I read Rowan Casey, they don't talk very much about adoption. It's a passing reference that that means out of the obligations of parenthood. But as I hear this answer, then are you saying that it, the right, as you conceive of it, is grounded primarily in the bearing of the child and the carrying of pregnancy and not so much looking forward into the consequences on professional opportunities and work life and economic 
burdens. So uh, it shows me that she has a pretty narrow view of kind of the women's interests here. She's really just looking at kind of the nine months of pregnancy and nothing afterwards. So that would tend to make me think that she's she's a vote for striking down row two. Right. So we have five justices who are probably ready to do that. And then Roberts, who is maybe not ready to say he's doing that, but is ready to do something that effectively does that. Right. And then, of course, the other three justices, I think we pretty much know where they are. Although, you know, one thing that was interesting to me was that Kagan and Breyer really focuses, focused on the court's legitimacy and what overturning Roe would mean. And one thing that I thought kind of took a backseat in, in this argument was really a woman's right and her interests in these cases. Um, it seemed like they were more, more focused on what this case is going to do to the court rather than what this case is going to do for women. Right. And from the majority's point of view, it's also a institutional concern, but maybe going the other way. So it's the institutionalism in the eye of the beholder type of thing. Okay, let's get into this week's sneak peek. So starting off, we're going to hear an immigration case, Patel versus Garland. And this case is asking whether federal courts have jurisdiction to review factual issues related to determining if a non-citizen is eligible for discretionary relief from removal. Um, Why wouldn't they, you ask, because you totally understood exactly what I said in that sentence. So stepping back a little bit, Congress has broad powers over immigration, including that it can actually cut federal courts off from hearing certain disputes. And it it has done that. In general, it says that uh, federal courts cannot hear factual disputes uh, about these kind of discretionary relief from removal. And so in those cases, the Board of Immigration Appeals would be the last word on those issues. The question is how broadly that reaches. So the petitioner here, an Indian national who's been living in the U.S. for 30 years, say federal courts are only barred from reviewing judgments in those cases, not initial eligibility determinations. But the United States Well, actually, it agrees with uh, the petitioner here. And so the court has appointed an amicus, Consovoy McCarthy, attorney Taylor Meehan, to argue in support of the 11th Circuit's contrary ruling. So uh, that's Patel. Up next is an ERISA case. So we turn to our ERISA expert. Jordan, take it away. Well, is it the ERISA expert or is it Jordan? Because those are different things. But Hughes against Northwestern, as you already previewed, Kimberly, this is an ERISA case or the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. So under ERISA, a retirement plan fiduciary has to meet what's called the standard of prudence in administering a plan. What happened here is that Northwestern employees alleged the plan paid or charged fees that substantially exceeded fees for other available investment products or services. And the legal question before the court is whether that allegation is enough to state a claim against the plan fiduciaries for breaching this duty of prudence. So the court can clarify the rules for these types of lawsuits, which have increased recently, and there are a bunch of suits on hold pending the outcome of this case. Wow, that's exciting. Um on Tuesday, we moved to even more exciting case. Well, I happen to think so. Uh, we have just one case, United States against Taylor. It's a criminal case. The issue is whether attempted federal robbery counts as a quote-unquote crime of violence, which subjects defendants to greater penalties. 
The appeals courts are split on the question involving the Hobbs Act, the federal law that punishes robbery and extortion affecting interstate commerce. It's the Justice Department that petitioned here after losing in the Fourth Circuit. The government says the issue affects many prosecutions. The defense says attempted Hobbs Act robbery can be done with threats alone, without force, so it's not necessarily a crime of violence. One interesting note here on the lawyers, Kimberly, is that representing Taylor is Michael Dreben, who is a longtime criminal deputy in the Solicitor General's office, and this will be the first time that he's appearing for a defendant now that he's in private practice. It'll be interesting to hear how this one goes. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be the government attorney arguing against Dreben in this case. He's Dreben is one of a, a few lawyers who have argued more than 100 cases before the justices, and um, he was the deputy in charge of criminal cases. So good luck, buddy. All right. So Wednesday, Kimberly, let's get the week wrapped up here. So Wednesday is Carson versus Mankin. And I think in any other term, we would have already talked about this case uh, quite a bit. Um, In this term, uh, it's one of these cases that's going to fly under the radar. Um, It involves Maine. Maine. Who knows what they're doing up there? I I didn't know this, Jordan, but um, more than half of the school districts in the state don't actually operate their own public schools. Weird, right? Instead, they partner with certain private schools to educate their students. So at, at issue here is which schools are eligible to partner with districts and receive funding. In particular, the state doesn't allow funding to go to religious schools. Uh, So this is another First Amendment case that sets up a battle between the two religion clauses, the Establishment Clause, um, which forbids the state from, you know, establishing a religion. Um, And so that has been read by many states in, in their constitutions to say that no taxpayer funding can go to religious institutions, including religious schools. Um, but then there's the free exercise clause, uh, which the Supreme Court recently has given a really robust meaning uh, to say that you can't discriminate or punish people uh, because of their religion. And so these these things, when it comes to funding, kind of go head to head. We saw it uh, a few terms ago with uh, regard to playgrounds in Missouri and funding um, to make make play safer for little Missourian kids. And there we saw the justices come down in favor of the free exercise clause. Um, There's really been a string of cases that have have gone that way as well. So I expect this one to go that way too. Yeah, you don't want to be on the other side of a free exercise case at this court. And then the last case of the week, Kimberly, is Shin against Ramirez and Jones. Wait, wait, didn't we hear that one already in October? This one was going to be heard earlier, but got pushed back with all of the expedited cases that we were hearing earlier in the term with the abortion case and then the other Ramirez case involving death row ministers and what rights people have when they're facing execution to have spiritual advisors in the death chamber. So I think actually this case, Ramirez, was going to be argued on the same day as the other Ramirez case. So has the benefit of not having both of those in one day. But in any event, here we have the case of Shin against Ramirez and Jones. It actually is two consolidated cases, two defendants here in separate cases. And it's another big criminal case. I would say perhaps one of the bigger cases of the term. And 
It involves the ability of defendants to raise ineffective assistance of counsel claims. It could actually lead to Arizona executing a person who may be innocent, Barry Jones. And the issue deals with defendants who are convicted in state court with ineffective trial lawyers and whether these defendants can develop evidence of this ineffectiveness in federal court during habeas review. So in a 2012 case, Martinez against Ryan, the court said defendants can raise ineffective assistance of trial claims during federal habeas review if during state post-conviction review they had ineffective counsel who failed to present that claim. So it's sort of a nesting doll of ineffective lawyers, but basically if it's not your fault that your ineffective lawyer didn't raise the ineffective assistance claim, you can then raise it in federal court. Oh, God. But the issue presented here in the consolidated case of two death row prisoners, Jones and David Martinez Ramirez, is whether defendants in these federal habeas cases can develop evidence outside of the state court record in support of their ineffective assistance claims. So Arizona says the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, or EDPA, which places strict limits on post-conviction claims, bars newly developed evidence in these cases. The Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of both Ramirez and Jones, and like in the Taylor case, the government appealed to the Supreme Court. And it's going to be a question of how the court balances that Martinez decision against the EDPA statute, and how the court balances those two will determine whether people with ineffective state lawyers are able to prove it in federal court, or whether people like Ramirez and Jones will nonetheless face execution. Okay, well... Um, On that note, uh, I think we should wrap it up for the week. We'll be back with a deep dive into those abortion arguments that we talked about next week. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.